China is the world's largest online retail market, valued annually at 400 billion euros. This is more than 1.5 times the entire European market size. Today, e-commerce accounts for 25% of China's domestic retail market. But the question remains, can you make it in China? And if so, how should you do it? To answer these questions, we've invited the man behind the development of H&M's online presence in China, Japan, Korea and India. He's former IKEA and has worked in China for many years. Today he's the CEO of Tritanium Ventures, in which he helps companies enter and grow in China and Asia with their e-commerce. We're so happy to have you, Magnus, on the show. Welcome! And uh, so you are really like, uh, you know a lot about China. I know you went to high school in Hong Kong. Is that, that's correct, right? Uh, yes, I, I went when I was 16. I, I moved on my own to Hong Kong and completed high school there. How, how did you get that idea? Where did that come from? Uh, I think, I mean, it helped that I, I actually grew up in Japan as yeah. a kid. So I, I'm, I grew up in Tokyo and uh, I lived there until I was... Uh, you know, I just finished sixth grade in, in, I was about 12. And then when I moved back to Sweden, I think I got a bit uh, bored in, <laughs> in, in the normal Swedish high school. Yeah. And I came across this uh, brochure about the school in Hong Kong. Okay. Called, uh, Lee Chun United World College. And it yeah. said, with a big headline, uh, apply for a scholarship, two years studying overseas. And there was 10 different schools on that list in different parts of the world. But I was yeah. like, mm, Hong Kong, I want to go to Hong Kong. <laughs> and the reason being, of course, that I lived in Japan. And I, I thought, you know, Asia is super interesting. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and so you went and how was it? Uh, it's, it was fantastic. It's it's the best thing I've done uh, since having kids. But I mean, it was uh, two years in a uh, super international school, uh, students from 70 different countries uh, we were all living on campus yeah half of the school half of the student body was from hong kong wow. uh, which was you know that's the way to get to know the local people yeah and i think the benefit and the challenge was that they also studied like crazy <laughs> uh, for me that helped a lot because my roommate was very sharing he would help me with his notes Okay. So I would never have made it through all those economics and biology tests without him. Uh, but and that's and that's where I started to study Chinese. So uh, wow. one of one of my subjects for high school there was was Mandarin, and this was back in in ninety six. Wow. I mean, I was there nineteen ninety four to ninety six. So mm. uh, it was not as you know people knew China was growing and would become more dominant, but it wasn't as uh, uh, you know evident as it is today. No. I don't know if this is a, like a rumor or if it's true, but I had a friend who told me that you know when when they study in Hong Kong, they actually bring like pillows to the to the study rooms, and then they then they study like crazy, and then they sleep underneath the desk, and then they study again. Is that is that is that is that true? Or people, I think they study very very hard, like that in that sense. Yeah, I I tried to find a balance because I wanted to see Hong Kong at the same time, and there were also pe- these amazing people from you know India, Spain, Mexico. Mm. that I also wanted to spend time with. And I just tried to be like very efficient. So I would like uh, have a big social life, but I would also study. And I think I studied very effectively. 
Mm. Uh, I think the local students, they studied a lot. They did really well on their IB scores. I think I had more fun and I still did well on my score. So you try to find a balance. But yes, it's true. I mean, we were living in the library the last six weeks because it's all exams. So you, you finish high school through end of the year exams. If you don't get a good score, you don't get a good score, basically. Hmm. And I, I, I literally moved to the library, but I didn't bring a pillow, but maybe some <laughs> of the local students did. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun story. But I, it sounds as if you really got to know the culture and you got into even more into Asia than you were before then. It, it definitely opened my eyes uh, for China because I knew a lot about Japan. I thought I mm. knew a lot about Asia, but it's totally different. I mean, it's, it's so hard to say Asia is... is I mean, it's 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 very uh, it's not so homogenous, right? It's different cultures in different countries. Yeah. But it was the eye opener for China because when I was studying in Hong Kong, we students did some project trips there. Um, mm. We went in a on a photography week, and we just took photos of of rural China, and that's the first time I got to practice my Chinese. And I realized, wow, this is so cool! <laughs> I can actually speak this language now, and uh, that gave yeah. me like the kind of push to study Chinese more in the future. Yeah, what what a feeling! I mean, that must have been. I mean, it was it was crazy. We we, we yeah. I went to China. I went to China. I lost my passport. It got stolen. I was 16 years old, and I had to get back to Hong Kong, and I didn't have any money or passport. Uh, and we were four students from all over the world, and we managed to get get back, <laughs> uh, speaking Chinese, and you know, trying to get tickets for the bus and swapping our swapping our train tickets for bus tickets instead. And, Yeah. I think it was uh, yeah, it was a good experience. I know, I know from your CV basically that you also later on took on like a like a frontline customer service role as when you were a trainee. Uh, was yes. that also then? I mean, that must have been local language all through and through. I, I, yeah, I so when I finished university in, in Stockholm after Hong Kong, I went back to university in Stockholm. Yeah, and then my first job was for a big shipping company called Hapagloid. So it's a mm. German container company. Don't ask me why, but it's a long story. But anyway, I got a trainee uh, internship, or no, I mean a, a trainee position in Shanghai, and I was the only foreigner in that whole company to ever have worked in the front lines, you know, in the customer service department. Yeah, because I was a trainee to learn from the ground up the different departments of shipping. Hmm. So yes, that was uh, very local. I mean, my boss just asked me the first day, "How long are you work in shipping?" Uh, it's my first day. I just graduated from uh, university in Sweden. Uh, how long you work for Hapag Lloyd? Uh, as I said, it's it's my first day, and he's like, "Dear now, dear what? Can you go to computer phone start working?" Okay. And then I answered hundred calls a day <laughs> for different people booking containers to different ports. Uh, yeah. I knew all the ports in the world by then, but they how, would book and they would just you know call me to to get things done basically. Yeah, uh, I mean, how how was that among the colleagues and everything? I mean, you must have been pretty unusual. Yeah, I was. I mean, the first day also, I was sitting really, really in the front row. In China, the boss is always in the back row, mm. and they assumed that since it's a German company, every delivery you know carrier that would come with different delivery things to this office, they would ask, "Why is the boss sitting in front?" <laughs> because I was a blonde guy. I mean, I stood out, right? Yeah. And I would say, like, you know, it's not always the the white guy who's the boss. Mm. And then they would they would laugh. Uh, I think the colleagues initially were just wondering why why am I doing this? Why am I 
doing this hardship job because it's it was like crazy. I mean, yeah. it was 100 phone calls a day. It was booking containers at the same time. Really, really tough. And they were like, why is he doing this? But we became really good friends. And I think I also helped them a lot because that time, this was in 2002, all the ships out of Shanghai, all the container ships were full of cargo. There was no space on any ship. Mm. And the European head office was like, you need to accept all this cargo. You have to take DHL, Danzas. You must take all the cargo. <laughs> so they were like, there's an expression in Swedish, and trying mm. to meet all these requirements from the overseas office. Yeah. Uh, because they couldn't really get back to them. But I, I could write emails back in good English and say like, look guys, we have a list and we need to get it sorted out. So, and then I became like the one who was helping them. So, so wow. I became, they were my friends, those, um, the local colleagues. Uh, cool. Um, but it was a good experience. So six months customer service. And then also I worked in the port in the Shanghai terminal, uh, unloading yeah. and offloading cargo from the ships. I know this is going to be really hard to answer, but I was just thinking when you said that when you came out of high school in Hong Kong, that you know the the, the, the that was a real eye opener of getting to know China in a new way. If you were to, you know, describe that, what was your? I mean, if you could summarize that kind of in, in some way, I mean, what was the realization that you made at that time? I, I, mean, I think when I because I lived in Japan, I and Japan was a huge Tokyo was a huge city. Mm. And then I moved back to a very normal life in Sweden, public school, you know, these kind of cliques of a different, you know, you have to wear the right clothes and you have to be with the right people. Yeah. And I think when I came to Hong Kong, it's a, it's a, it's a mega, you know, mega city. It's a metro, metropolitan city, right? Yeah. So that was an eye opener. But then also when I traveled to China, I realized that something is happening here. Uh, there's a lot of changes. I mean, these people are, are going places. Mm. It, it was more like I had this feeling that this country is going to change radically. Uh, I remember this was back in '96, so you couldn't really foresee that you would have all these skyscrapers in Shanghai that you have today. I mean, it was it was not as developed back then, but I could feel somehow this that this was really growing. And then I had also this I just developed a fascination for the Chinese language, mm. and I thought it was so cool to be able to sit there and speak to Chinese people. Yeah. And I think I just saw how big the world was. I mean, that I had a small little world in Sweden, but here was something else. And it's hard to explain, but I had that just got this uh, feeling that uh, I should learn more about this country. And I definitely want to come back and work here someday. You know, for the people who are listening to us and, and to, to want to get to know you a little bit better, uh, Tritanium Ventures, tell us about that and your company. Yeah, this is a new uh, business. It's set up in, in Sweden. We work with a partner company in China. Um, so the main idea is to help brands uh, enter and develop in uh, online markets in Asia with a strong focus on China. So if you have a, a consumer brand that you want to sell uh, digitally, in one of uh, Asia's platforms, mm. we want to help, basically. And we're quite selective which brands we bring in, but it's, it's fashion, cosmetic skincare, and different lifestyle brands that we think have a big potential in the Chinese market. What made you start Tritanium? I had this kind of same uh, uh, insight when I started to work for H&M that, you know, online is a future, is the future. 
that I'd seen in China, that China is the future, because I launched uh, a lot of uh, H&M's websites for e-commerce in Asia. So I launched a couple of years ago, my first project there was launching H&M.com in China. Uh, and then I realized, wow, this is uh, also really interesting. This is a really cool area to work with. This will be the future. Mm. Um, so, so I had that same uh, same kind of feeling, uh, and then I realized that it's uh, a lot of brands want to do this, but it's not that easy. No. It's super fun. It's challenging and fun, but it's not so easy. So I, I realized I'm sh- I'm sure I can help somehow, and I've always wanted to to have my own business, uh, and I've actually had my own business before. So the step was not that that difficult. Uh, I think I was a bit fed up with working for a, a big corporate. Uh, mm after six years uh, in a fantastic company, but I, I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. So the step was not that difficult. No, and I think we, I mean, in, in, in Scandinavia, I think we're pretty used these days to, you know, uh, having kind of China as the, as the factory of the world, as they, as they call it, you know, being the kind of the part of the supply chain and, and us buying things from china but i think you know you you bring a whole other perspective into this as china as kind of the consumer market of china uh, yeah, it's, it's true i mean back when i was there everyone was like can you find me a supplier of this yeah. and that i'm like no i don't know anything about supply suppliers no. in china i know a lot about the market in china mm. uh, and that's what i'm doing now it's not made in china it's, it's sold in china yeah. and it's sold digitally uh, so i also get key open a store for us in china i'm like there's no point opening a store, but you can go into one of these sales channels online and you know start your brand there. Mm. Uh, so that's I just like that uh, uh, combination of China and digitally digital. Yeah, uh, and that's kind of what I want to help. What we want to help brands with. I mean, I, I think it's super super interesting, and that's of course what we want to learn about today as well. And I'm thinking about just you know Chinese purchase behavior. I mean, that, how is that different from what we know in Scandinavia? Uh, I mean, when you look at, first of all, it's it's online, right? Mm. And everyone in China has a smartphone. And on top of that, everyone has installed some pre-installed apps, or they've installed some apps uh, like Taobao uh, or Tmall or Alipay, which belong to Alibaba's ecosystem, or they've installed WeChat, which is the Tencent, a different ecosystem. Mm. But the fact that everyone has these apps installed uh, makes it quite easy to to uh, for, for for consumers to buy online. So the difference I think between uh, China and the West is that everyone is using their smartphone. Like ninety five percent of shopping or ninety percent of shopping is done on the smartphone. Yeah, and they also uh, use these uh, platforms that you know Alibaba has built up for shopping. Mm. And the Tencent platform for convenience, to pay, to order things, to find things, to to interact with friends. And also, it's very social. It's a super social uh, uh, setup where you you ask your friends or you ask people you trust or you look at so-called key opinion leaders, what they have bought. Mm. And then you use that info to buy yourself. And you also look very carefully at the different platforms. Where's the best deal? And can I invite a friend to get an even better deal? And that's this whole social part. Mm. Because you can invite your, your friends. There's there's a platform called Pindodo, which is like, if you buy it yourself, it's 100 RMB, or about the same in, in 130 SIC. Mm. If you invite two friends, it's only 30 RMB. 
So you invite your friends, but it has to be a good deal. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a completely different ecosystem in that way that you need to understand if you want to go there. Yeah, stepping back, I think that's the main thing. I mean, it's very different from, from uh, the West. Uh, when we were doing research at my former employer, we, we, I asked some Chinese people, I put them in a room, I said, can you guys shop something online? Because I wanted to know where they would go, right? Yeah. And they all typed in Taobao.com, which hmm. is T Alibaba's big platform. Can you go to another site? And they looked up at me and said, but you told me to buy something online, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Then they went to tmall.com. I'm like, but can you go to another site? What, what are you talking about? You said shop online. I think in the West, you go to like the brand nike.com or hm.com mm. or ikea.com. You go yeah. to the actual brand site. Mm. That doesn't happen. Uh, some consumers, of course, also goes to those sites. They might know exactly what they want and they might want to pay a bit more or they might find the news on that site. But it, all, it's all platform-based. Everyone is shopping on uh, a platform. I'm curious here. I mean, do you see differences then in how you, I mean, like the the, the, the unique brand would kind of uh, position position themselves in relation to those platforms in China? Uh, also, yes. then. I mean, some brands, I think they've, I mean, it's difficult for brands to do it correctly. I haven't seen that many good examples. Mm. They're trying to have like Apple when they launched uh, in China, You know, they launched on Tmall as well. And initially, they only had the newest models on their own website. But there's no traffic to your own website. So shortly thereafter, they also presented the newest models on Tmall. Mm. And, you know, the sales went crazy. So it's 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 all about this protecting the brand. I don't want to put my brand on a platform. Yeah. Uh, I want to keep it on my own platform. The brands that managed to do that, I haven't really seen any good examples I think the brands that managed to do it well, they realized that e-commerce is not a website. It's not, you know, brand.com. No. E-commerce is your OMS, your order yeah. management system. As long as you can take your order management system and connect to different platforms, mm. and then you make products or services that consumers really want, and you deliver those in a good way to each of those platforms, that's yeah. how you can succeed. So it's like an omni-channel approach, but staying true to your brand, basically, in all the channels. What's your general view that brands are afraid of in this? Uh, are you afraid to give something up, maybe? Or uh... I, I think I'm working with a bunch of brands now, and they're all, of course, very keen to keep their brand image and mm. be really on brand. And that's great because that's the only way you can stand out in China because there's such a competitive environment. There's so many different brands. That's great. But I think they feel they have better control of how that brand is portrayed when it's on your own website or in your own store. But if you look at Tmall, if you look at WeChat or Little Red Book, the other platforms, you can also portray your brand in the brand way, the way the brand wants it. Mm. Uh, if you just, you know, adapt a bit, but you don't have to adapt that much. But I think since it's so different, people get scared. Yeah. Uh, and the West, the, yeah, I, Instagram is fine. I know what Instagram is. I can put my logo the exactly right way and I can have pictures that I control. Mm. It's actually the same thing for Little Red Book. It's just a different name and it's just in Chinese. So I think brands get a bit hesitant when it's something new and different. Mm. And, so what, and they might miss the opportunity if they if they think, oh, I will only have it in my own flagship store and yeah. I will only have it on my own .com. 
yeah, for sure. I mean, so so your recommendation on this to don't be scared, just do it. Or I mean, what's what would you? I think you need to really yeah. do your market research. Yeah. So where are your consumers, and what do you want to achieve? Do you want to mm. create brand awareness, or do you want to sell? Mm. Uh, you know, or do you want to just build the brand in another platform? So look at your objectives and don't be too scared and don't be naive at the same time because you must have control of your brand. Don't just outsource your whole content handling to another third party that doesn't know your brand. You need to control your brand assets, but you yeah. can show them. You Don't be afraid of the platforms. Just control how your brand is shown. And can you do that with these platforms? You can control your content, so to say, on them? or De- Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Of course, there's some limits, but you can go to... If you look at Tmall, which is the main... Uh, it's the Tmall is an Alibaba-owned platform for real brands. So Tmall and Taobao together, they make up you know the majority of e-commerce sales in China. Mm. Uh, and fashion is 70%. I saw a figure last week when I had a meeting. So I don't know if it's public yet, but that's even higher. So the fashion is even is above 70%. Uh, fashion sales, online fashion sales in China is all through Tmall and Taobao. Mm. Uh, and you can, if you look at Tmall, it's it's not just an, like an Amazon style with a product and price. It's a flagship store. Mm. And you can decorate that flagship store true to your brand. It's quite free, basically. Uh, you can make it look exactly the way you want, but you will have to use Alipay, which is the main payment process. So that's one step you can't really influence. But, you know, in the West, who cares about that? I mean, in China, no. who cares? That's the way they're used to paying. Yeah. It's it's quite flexible how you show it, but you need to spend some time. You need to be patient and work with the designer, mm. really, on a day-to-day basis and explain what you want to show. Things get lost in translation as well. Yeah, and do they have their own designers there that you would work with them? Or uh, I mean, Tmall is, is uh, often you use uh, a so-called Tmall partner. Yeah. And that's one I partnered with one of the biggest Tmall partners in China. Uh, so they can design. Mm. Some brands also do it themselves, but it's it's really a craft. It's really a craft building a Tmall flagship store. Yeah. Uh, but it's not it's not actually Alibaba employees doing the design. They just give you the platform, and that's why Alibaba is quite smart. They give you the platform, they charge a commission for all your all for your sales, and you build the website, and you get a, a team of partner to help you manage that website and to drive the traffic. And we we we, we talked a bit about kind of Chinese consumer behavior, but I guess then designing that store requires quite a bit of understanding of of that. So uh, how would you? How would you do that? Yeah, there, there's some. I mean, it's quite similar. I think what's a main difference in China, if you go to a website, you'll see it's a lot of scrolling. Yeah. You just scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. That's coming here as well. You know, mm. also to the west, that you just scroll down. It's so easy on your iPhone. Just scroll down, right? And you mm. click on something you like. And also, every window, like if you're on, if you're on your PC, every every window opens in a new window. So you can have like lots of different windows open to compare yeah. and check, right? Yeah. Uh, but I don't think you should localize the design to look Chinese, you know, uh, to try to have like, uh, they like, you know, animated things. So they might like cartoons. Just look at Tmall. It's Tmall in, in Chinese, which is Sky Cat. Mm. So China has this uh, obsession with animal names, mm. right? And uh, Alipay <laughs> is, is an ant logo. It's an ant. It's, um, okay. And is the logo. So I wouldn't go that 
that's the balance, you know, be true to the brand. Don't go too local in how it looks mm. because that's the only way you can stand out. But you need to follow kind of the, the UX that a consumer is used to. And if exactly. you're building your own website, look at the process on Timo. There are some extra steps before mm. you, you know, click pay. You confirm your order because they might want to add or move things. They might just want to save things in their wish list, save things in their basket. And this was one of the fun things with launching HM.com in China. It was a very like Western approach. This is the checkout. Uh, put in basket, pay, get the ending page, and you're finished. Mm. Like, but you know, in China, they have a favorite list, and they leave it there forever. Mm. Or they just add to cart, and they check it out later. You, know, you might uh, have to actually lock that stock for a while. So they follow the, the, the user experience uh, on, uh, on one of the big platforms. I, I complicate it too much. Yeah, I love these nitty gritties. I mean, this is when I think this gets super interesting. And uh, I, I was just thinking, you know, if we take a step back, thinking about the online retail in China, and in particular, I mean, you know, you know China. I mean, why why do you think that has why has it boomed so much there? Um, there's many different reasons. Uh, so, I think if you just take the combination of really high smartphone penetration, mm. really thrifty Chinese entrepreneurs with a good education, millions, literally millions of service workers that can deliver uh, or you know help with different services, and people with growing incomes and huge populations. That's like the best breeding ground for any IT startup or any startup that wants to sell a product or service via smartphones. Mm. So it has kind of that 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 infrastructure, uh, and then there are other reasons uh, that that I think I, you know Taobao was the first. Uh, it was Alibaba. So Jack Ma launched uh, Alibaba as a B two B platform, and if I can say a funny quote, uh, this was you know back in in ninety uh, Yeah, there was saying you know you know Jack Ma you la- you've la- launched Alibaba. Uh, but look at uh, the West. Look at Boo.com, for example. Mm. They've crashed. Uh, they, they didn't manage to, to get their, their business idea up and running. Uh, you know, what's your comment? And he's like, we are Alibaba, not Alibubu. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then he launched Taobao, which was mm. genius. It was a, a C2C platform for Chinese people to sell to Chinese people. And why can't they just sell to each other directly? Why do they have to go to a platform? Because there's not this trust in the same level as we have, I think, in Scandinavia. You know, I can sell something on Blockit and I yes. could maybe pay up front because mm. I kind of know this, I trust that person or I, I have some kind of trade trust. Uh, the first thing Taobao did was this kind of escrow service. So you're never paying to the person directly. You pay to Taobao. When you okay. confirm your goods received, you get the money or you, mm. the money is sent to the seller. Uh, and that made up for this lack of trust between individuals. Mm. And you also don't have the same credit checks that we have in Sweden, like the same kind of possibilities to see someone's credit history or if they have a bad record or, you know, they have to check their personal ID. I mean, in, yeah. in Sweden, you can just Google, you find so much info about people mm. that didn't exist. So Taobao had lots of smart functions to make up for that lack of trust. That's why they took off. Yeah. Uh, and together with this, you know, fact that people have smartphones uh, and then growing incomes and uh, growing just consumption. That's why digital became so big. And also 
it's super convenient. Chinese people love convenience. It's it's smoother than Klarna. <laughs> the whole yeah. checkout process. You you just find what you want. You take a photo of what you want. You search mm. for it on Taobao. You click. You pay. You checked out, and then you get it delivered super quickly. So in a ways, the lack of kind of trust between people has now been replaced by a trust in the digital, so to say. And I mean, I think that sometimes for um, also as we discussed about what you might be afraid of as a brand going to to China is also, of course, not knowing and not trusting maybe so much. Exactly. But but I mean, is this, do you see a relation there that you mean you could can can we trust the digital platforms basically? It sounds 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 so on your description, but I mean the the good thing with digital platform is the data is there, right? Yeah. So you can see I sold to this person. This is the data that shows it. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, that, I mean that's kind of why I I I think I have an existence as this kind of middleman to help brands sell. Yeah. Is that you don't really know who to trust. People have made money very quickly in China, and so that's people really want to make money quickly. So you have to kind of be careful with who you choose to do business with. Mm. Um, you, you've heard the term to become Shanghai, right? You get yeah, yeah. tricked. Yeah, yeah. That grew after Shanghai. And that was in another another era. But you have to be a bit not paranoid, but you have to be a bit wary uh, of mm. uh, not naive when you do yeah. business in China. Yeah. Uh, but that's I mean, and back to your question for for the consumers. Yeah, I think that's the reason they 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 kind of trust. Uh, people they follow in social media, they trust their friends, they trust their families. If they recommend something or, you know, say this product is really good, they will buy it. Mm. But if they go to the physical store and a salesperson says, this is the best one, this is the best one, this is the best one, they know that physical salesperson is getting a commission to sell exactly that product. Yeah. So when I worked for, I worked for at Ikea in China. So I was, that's where I had my, after this shipping episode, I, I joined Ikea's market consumer consumer market research manager. Mm. Uh, and then it was the fun thing was, you know, when we were on the shop floor, customers would come in and say, I want to buy a bed. Okay, this bed is actually really good. Uh, okay, but what brand is that? Oh, it's Ikea. Yeah, but which brand are you trying to sell me? Which brand do you work for? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm working for Ikea, but it's called uh, Sultan. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a, a sub-brand, uh, blah, 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 trying to explain. Yeah. I'm not promoting that brand. You can take any any bed you want. But they were so ah. accustomed to people getting a commission, right, uh, yeah. on things they were selling. So, so they trust tend to trust people online. Uh, mm. uh, if an anonymous stranger leaves a good rating, they trust that more than that of a salesperson in a store. Hmm. And I think I think Taobao really capitalized on that. There's a huge rating review function uh, yeah. on on Taobao as well and Tmall. I, I was just about to ask you, I mean, because I'm curious about like these key elements that a Chinese company would apply when they launch a new e-commerce. Mm. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking now that, you know, this one needs obviously to be one of them, <laughs> what you just talked about. But I mean, wh- what else would you say would be, you know, needed when you launch something in China? If you want to launch in China, you don't need to reinvent it yourself. You don't need to look at these platforms that you enter, Right. So forget about having your own brand.com initially, but you look at how these platforms work. And if you want to have that as an example, what what is it that makes these platforms so successful? It's social. 
so online in China is social. I call it like social fishing. Yeah. You know, you, 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 you share with your friends on WeChat and that can spread like crazy because you keep sharing to so many people and it comes like a huge snowball of people that have read about your brand, been recommended it and then go and shop. So you need to think about the social aspect directly. Like I think Spotify added this kind of, uh, you know, l- social sharing function with your friends. Yeah. That came quite late. Mm. That was not, uh, as per my understanding, that was not there for the beginning. It was just like a place to listen to music. Yeah. If it was a Chinese app, that would be there direct. The first thing that you share what you're listening to with people. Okay, so that's the that's the first thing they put up basically. I mean, shopping in China is a spectator sport, right? Yeah, yeah. Because you look at in even live what other people are shopping mm. on a live stream. You see comments from people that bought it. Wow, I bought it. It's great. Uh, and then it's a sport because there's not so many other things to do in China uh, in the big cities. There's not that many parks or, you know, golf courses or Mm. things to do. It's shopping. Mm. And now that you've had this COVID virus, those shopping centers are closed as well. Mm. So people are living their lives online and shopping online and sharing. That's one thing. The other thing is the content. It's much more detailed content. It's a lot of, you know, moving content. Mm. So, you know, TikTok, for example, is Douyin in in Chinese. They have a lot of... uh, uh, live content, this short videos, videos introducing products. Uh, and I remember m- my former employer, we had too few photos uh, of per item. And they're like, but you know, come on, we have four pictures per item. Isn't that enough? In average, it's 12. And yeah. there's usually a video as well. So let's start, you know, filming these videos, uh, filming these products. So, and also one big thing is live stream. That's taking off here in the West as well, where yeah. you actually... It's like TV shop. You're seeing live a product being presented and you buy it live in that live stream. Hmm. Uh, and of course, you need the rate and review uh, to secure the trust. And then the other layer is the whole operations that you need super convenience. You need fast delivery. That's why it's difficult to do overseas. So uh, cross-border commerce, because it takes too long to get the product into China. Yeah, You need to make sure they get it quickly. You need to make sure, sure it's super easy to return, preferably directly to the carrier, when uh, the, the courier when he came to your door. You try it, you return it directly. Mm. Uh, and it needs to be like a smooth payment process. Don't make them uh, pay with credit card, go lots, through lots of credit control checks, and it takes 90 seconds to check out. They should just you know scan a QR code and pay. Mm. And the other thing I think that you need to think about is that you can personalize a lot in China. So maybe in Sweden, if you go to a website, they might have four different landing pages or 10 different landing pages. Yeah. They know you're a man, so you show man things. So they know you're a woman, so you get to see ladies' fashion. Mm. Uh, t has like something called a thousand uh, uh, face, thousand page. So they really, really micro uh, lo- uh, personalize. Maybe you don't need to go into such a deep level, but make sure you, you adapt the offer to different people. Mm. China is a huge country. It's totally different. Beijing and Guangzhou, it's two different things. And if you go inland, it's a totally different world. You know, if you yeah. go to a province in the West, in one of the smaller, in the, one of the other tier cities, that's like tier three, tier four, tier five, yeah. it's different realities. So you can't really say it's one Chinese group of consumers. You need to look at no. all the different people. Yeah, and you need to do you need to adapt to those different groups then. To some to some uh, degree, you, you you would need to adapt. You need to look at where you want to focus. 
Mm. Uh, but it's also you have to look at what people did those people follow. Uh, oh, which yeah. influencers are they looking at? You know, it could be different that because uh, influencers are a really big thing in China. It's mm. called KOL, so key opinion leader. Which key opinion leaders are are you know your target group focusing on? Mm. And I, and that's another totally chapter. Why are people really looking to these influencers so much? And I think it's because China has been bombarded with so many different styles and brands and the way to dress, the way to live. I mean, there's so much marketing. If you walk down any street in Shanghai, everyone is pushing their products. Yeah. Right. And even in China, I was doing lots of interviews with people. I would go to their homes and say, "Oh, that painting is looks a bit Western. Why did you buy? Where did you buy that painting? Mm. Oh, I bought it from this design firm. Okay, why did you buy it? Because it's a nice design. Oh, do you like design? Uh, what kind of design do you like? I don't really know." Hmm. That, um, why did you buy this one? Oh, my friend is a designer and he chose that painting for me. Uh-huh. So you kind of trust someone else for this how-to. Yeah. And I think that's the whole thing. It's difficult to find your own style because of all the different influences and all the different brands that are there. Hmm. So you tend to rely on experts and the experts are the KOL or these bloggers. I think it's time that we pull up this uh, weekly listener question that we have uh, as a standing standing one in this in this podcast. Uh, and this uh, this week we have somebody who's obviously wanting to enter the Chinese uh, market as an e-com, but uh, not really sure of what to do. And I think the question here is about also the setup of the company. So do I? The, the, the question is: Do I? Do I need to set up a company in China, or can I operate from Scandinavia, basically? Well, there's a there's a short answer to that. Yes, you need to be locally present. Mm. If you want to make it big in China, in China, you need to have a local office, and that's not that difficult. I mean, that's one of the things I help companies with to set up uh, Woofies locally, which is like a wholly owned foreign enterprise. Okay, uh, that's not that difficult. You can also do cross border. Uh, that depends on if you have a product that consumers are willing to wait for. Mm. But if you want to grow and you see Asia or China as a key market, you have to be there because it's China speed. Mm. So what I will say, what I'm saying today is obsolete in just a couple of weeks. Things are changing <laughs> so quickly. Yeah. And, and you need to be there to decide, are we going to join this campaign on Tmall? Are we going to do this thing with our mini program on WeChat? Mm. Things change uh, quickly and, and you need to be there and understand the trends. So definitely local presence. In some cases, if you have a, a niche product not available anywhere else in China, you could do cross-border. Yeah. But then you probably need a good partner. How, how would a setup like that look if you were to go, go local, so to say? Uh, you would, I mean, just uh, set up a company, yeah. bring your product into the market, uh, and then connect that uh, order management system to all these different platforms. Mm. And make sure you are... Uh, doing the marketing correctly in, in social media and working with the right, right KOLs uh, yeah. and then just prepare to be challenged. <laughs> and that's the thing. I think the fun thing is when you meet brands, they were like, do we need to go to China? Maybe it's because of the COVID virus, but do we need to be in Shanghai? Yeah. They wouldn't, you know, blink if you asked them to go to London or New York to set up an office. Mm. They're like, yeah, that we could just open an office there. We recruit some local staff. 
uh, you need to do the same thing for China, and you need to send your best people there because it's yeah. the toughest market in the world. I mean, would you? I mean, setting up an office—that's one thing. But I mean, sending your people. Would you? Uh, how, how big of an operation would you recommend? I mean, it's, it's really hard to say in a generic term, of, of course. But what, uh, what would... it depends. It depends on the brand. It depends on how big you want to be. Uh, if you have a good partner, uh, yeah, they can do most of the work for you. You might just need one person to have control of your company and to make sure you they stay on brand basically mm. that this is the brand this is what the sales campaigns this is how we work but if you are bigger you start growing you need to send more people or recruit locally and there's a lot of local talent as well but everyone is fighting for them now yeah yeah and i mean what type of profile would you want to send then if you were to send a representative preferably someone that speaks chinese yeah <laughs> or at least someone that's curious and open and doesn't say the West is best. They need to be like, I'm quite open to new markets and doing new things. I think Swedes in general are quite, uh, you know, they think Sweden is the best country. Mm -hmm. So they might have some challenge. So you need to be uh, a bit humble uh, and also entrepreneurial and able to think outside of the box and uh, work with workarounds. Uh, like like a flexible person that's Chinese speaking, that would be the best, and maybe they're not that easy to find. Is it is it is it? I mean, pure legally, is it is it difficult to set something up in China? Like a, like uh, a... there is a lot of paperwork. Yeah, uh, but uh, I, I I'm just processing this for for a client right now, and it's it's like uh, was like fifty signatures or something like that. Hmm. Uh, but once you get that done, uh, I mean, the Chinese invented a lot of things, right? The gunpowder and, and uh, <laughs> paper, but they also invented bureaucracy. So <laughs> once you get that done, it's not that difficult, actually. Uh, it's much easier now than it was before. You can get this retail license. You can get approval for things quicker. Yeah. But you just need to, like, a lot of the, everything's in Chinese, all the contracts, right? And you also need to follow some regulations. But it's not that difficult, no. to be honest. It's not as smooth as in Sweden because in Sweden you can do most of the things just set up a a company quite quickly online. China you can you apply online but you still need to submit some documents. I think we've gotten some really really good input here on how you can how you can kind of what you need to think about when you go when you want to go to China to sell. I was just thinking also listening to you that this is almost like, I think for me, looking a little bit into the future. I think we see also in Scandinavia a lot of these things happening to some extent. I mean, we are pretty big on influencer marketing. We are going into the networking type of social selling type of business mm -hmm. as well. And we are doing a little by little these things, but not in the same way as in China, not on that type of wide front. Do you think Do you think we could learn more from China than what we are doing, actually? Definitely. I mean, because of this vast pool of people, as I just explained, like the lots of people uh, with their smartphones and lots of entrepreneurs and the fact that there are so many digital platforms, it's the looking glass for future e-commerce in the West. Mm. A lot of ideas have already trickled down. You're seeing live stream is coming to Sweden as well. Yeah. Uh, live streams will become quite big here. Uh, and I think more, all of the services China has been offering, like same-day delivery, within two-hour delivery, I mean, in China, they have, during some of the big shopping festivals, they have cars that are just ambulating in the city uh, with the most wanted goods. 
and they can deliver it within five minutes if they happen to be where the customer placed the order. It's like a mobile warehouse. Yeah. I'm sure we will have uh, cars loaded with uh, iPhones on Cyber Monday in Sweden or Black Friday in Sweden in the big cities because they can deliver those directly. So you like make mini warehouses throughout different big cities. That will come as well. Uh, and uh, convenience as well. It's just interesting that no one in the West has really been able to do what WeChat has done. No. So WeChat is, is a tool to connect and chat with your friends. It's also, uh, you know, play um, WeChat payment. You can pay with WeChat. Mm. So I was like, I was felt like a farmer. I walked into the restaurant in Shanghai and I go, can I have the menu? They're like, you only the show, like use your phone. <laughs> oh yeah, WeChat, right. And I scanned the QR code. The menu was there. Yeah. I ordered what I wanted and then they served it to me. And then when I left, I was like, can I have the bill? They're like, pay with your phone. Oh yeah, yeah, right. I just, of course, paid in WeChat as well. Yeah. And I, I don't see, you know, I, maybe Swish or, or Klarna or one of these companies that where quite a lot of people have the app installed. They could take this, right, and become like a super app uh, in Sweden and start incorporating um, services uh, for restaurants or for different service providers. No one has really taken that position. So no. I think it's really interesting to look at, at WeChat for that reason. Another, another company to look at is also Pinduoduo. Uh, it's maybe like the, it's a bit of the poor man's Tmall mm-hmm. or poor man's Taobao. It's really cheap items, but they did this, a Groupon thing. So if you invite your friends, uh, you can buy the item at a lower price. Hmm. And the prices are crazy. I mean, it's, it's too good to be true. Uh, and that will just increase because they're getting so many products from the West now after the COVID virus. They have all these overstock and they just dump it in China, basically. Yeah. Uh, but I think that that uh, c- combination of a platform where you also can invite your friends to shop and you get a cheaper price, that will come as well, where it becomes this social asset. So it's definitely, it's some of the things happening in China will definitely come here. And also in terms of convenience. So next time you walk into, a, a, it's like a bit like going to McDonald's. They go, for here or to go? Hmm. So the next time you walk into a store, like, do you want to try things here or you just want to go directly? And you will just maybe say, oh, I'd like to buy that item. Okay, scan this QR code, choose your item, and go and pick it up on your way out. Um, so that's where China is also uh, ahead in terms of bringing the physical store together with the online experience. So it's like this kind of seamless retail. Yeah. Uh, there was this huge thing called New Retail, which was coined by, by Jack Ma, where he's connecting physical stores to Tmall. It's actually not played out that well there's not that many brands that have done it but a lot of the brands are incorporating wechat or tmall somehow into their offline business hmm. and that will come here as well especially yeah. with with virus that you don't want to go to the store maybe you just go to the store to pick up something to order something uh, to speak to a robot and place an order and that's delivered home so it will change the in what we see in china will will also come to the west I, I think I read somewhere that you know the the stores these the physical stores these days are turning there uh, in China then more and more into just experience centers basically. Uh, but I was just thinking about what you just said and the impact of the coronavirus. Do you think that that that's going more towards the direction that you just said that maybe it's just more of a, a quick serve type of operation? I think, I think coronavirus will will speed that up. Yeah. Uh, the way the reason 
brands have flagship stores is because they want to raise awareness for the brand. It's a whole branding experience. It's a marketing experience, right? Yeah. Uh, they might just, people recognize the brand. Oh, I know this brand because I've seen their store. And then they have this trust when they purchase it online. Mm. Mm. But it's an established brand. They have a huge store in that place. So they can't, you know, want to cheat me. No. Uh, and I think that was smart. That's the way to do branding in China to, to read it. That's where you can help people experience uh, your products. I think Nike did a good job with this kind of experience store in, in China where you can really get a feel for the products and it's a sporty environment. Mm. And it's super smart. I mean, Ikea, the main reason people go to Ikea is to buy food in the restaurant. Yeah, It's packed. People are living in the room sets. There's not that many other places to go outside of the home in the big cities. IKEA becomes a nice, uh, you know, hangout point. You can go and sleep in the sofa. You can have the coffee. It's free if you're a family member. Yeah. I think China is the only market where people only take the coffee and don't buy a cake. <laughs> uh, so because you know they're smart, why, why should I pay for uh, a coffee somewhere else? It's it's free if I have this membership card. Yeah. Um, so so the point is that it was smart to build flagship stores. I think that will help the brand awareness. Today, I'm not sure after the coronavirus. Because people don't want to go to those places. So they will want to see live stream. They will want to experience it digitally in their phone instead. Yeah. I mean, and looking ahead, I think we touched on it now. I think from the coronavirus and we talked about the QR codes. That's one thing that I think us in the West have been kind of all of a sudden aware of since this since the news broadcasts from, from Asia and stuff like that. But I think and now we talked about this, about the flagship stores. What other trends do you think you know do you see in asia coming off the on, in the wake of of the coronavirus um i mean it will speed up i mean china's already ahead in in terms of digitalization um they've had live stream for a long time so you can't really say it as a trend no but i think that the platforms will start incorporating social buying that you you, you shop and talk with your friends while you're shopping Mm. And and they will speed that up. So maybe T-Mobile will roll up some similar function that uh, they probably already have as well. Well, they have by the time we send this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it's a group buy, right? Or some kind of combination where you you join your friends and you you shop together with your friends digitally instead of meeting and hanging out. You can't. They will shop online. Yeah. Um, and I think right now there's a huge interest in China in in skincare and cosmetics, uh, especially organic ones. And because you can't really go and get grooming, right? You don't want to go to uh-huh. the hairdresser. Maybe you might not want to go for a face treatment or do that because of the of the contagion aspect. Mm. So that's moving indoors. So we see like a big potential for for strong uh, cosmetic and skincare brands to to sell in China now, yeah. and also for professional brands to sell directly to consumers. And I think that the, the other thing in China that we see more is there will be even more local brands that are using this hyper-convenience and social social vision. So you have, for example, Perfect Diary, which is a cosmetics brand that came out of nowhere and they're beating, you know, the big foreign brands like L'Oreal. Mm. are just better at, at marketing and, and socially marketing. And they're also, it's a super ex- uh, smooth experience when you shop. And there will be more brands like that that just appear in China. Mm. 
uh, can I just ask you, I mean, if, if you were to give us, you know, the last kind of, you know, the do's and don'ts, if you want to go to China, when, I mean, if, give me the top three, what, what do you, what do you need to think about and what not to do? Don't be paranoid, but don't be naive. Uh, do your homework. It's the world's most competitive market. So know where, where does your brand stand in this, in these marketplaces and how should you pitch this brand? to your consumer group in China. So you need to do your homework in terms of research. Yeah. And, and I would, you know, you need a Chinese speaker, you need a, a, a partner to help you, a partner you can trust and that understands your brand. Uh, and then I think also like Scandinavian, uh, which is, what's the word in, in courtesy? They were quite uh, polite and, and cur- that goes a long way. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not that different. Uh, Go out there, uh, meet people, uh, network, get to know the market, uh, and but then also you know make it, it is a tough market. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, don't be too too naive either. Mm. Um, but I think I think the main thing is also that it's different, right? It's like the Galapagos Islands. Nothing like this really exists anywhere else. <laughs> so you need to be uh, you need to have a open mind. Yeah. If you want to say, I want to go and sell via my store because in Sweden I've sold through stores and I've seen these products on shelves. No, you need to think about online and mm. the right platforms. And you need to become build up good relationships with that platforms. That's probably the main lesson also for China. Relationships is everything. So know who you do your business with. And that means that's really literally get to know them and that means go there is what you say <laughs> go there and get to know yeah. the people that yeah. you want to work with and, and get to know these different platforms uh... thank you again thank you so much uh, you know if we if we were to interview somebody else in this podcast and we normally ask this who who do you recommend us to 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 bring in uh, I, mean, I would look at a totally different market uh, so uh, because India I think is also very interesting yeah Uh, uh, so I launched agent.com in India uh, and then I saw like wow this is you know China 10 years ago uh, mm. you know this is going to go crazy uh, there's some platforms there as well it's not as dominant um, as in China where one or two platforms dominate but there's a lot of stuff happening there so I would definitely in- interview someone that's doing what I'm doing for India I don't know one but a person I would recommend is probably you know the, the CEO of, of H&M India which is uh, his Janna Ainola And he's he's built up the, the the offline business, but also, you know, the online business. That could be an interesting person. Cool. Yeah, that's a great tip. We'll do our best to try and get a hold of him. Thanks again for joining Get Savvy, and thank you for wanting to help us to support uh, entrepreneurs in the Nordics and getting more street savvy and street smart. So thanks a lot for coming, and thanks for joining the podcast. My pleasure. It was uh, great to be have joined. Thank you. Mm.